Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Why don't you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning we get to finish up a journey that has taken us about four months. It was the week after Easter that we started into 1 Timothy, where we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through 1 Timothy, now all the way through 2 Timothy. And we've had so many incredible teachings where we've just been able to drink deep of of the Apostle Paul and, and how he poured into his young protege, Timothy. And I know God has spoken to those of you who've been along with us during this journey, but at this ending moment, Paul is about to give his last nugget of truth. Now, he knows he is not long for this world. The Roman Empire is about to take his life. He is about to meet his maker. And so he's going to throw down a last challenge to Timothy, as well as some really important review of his own life on what really mattered. And my prayer is that God speaks to you through these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Let's start reading together. Here's what it says. Paul says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I love the words of Paul here. If if there was anything I could have written on my own epitaph when I'm gone, Virginia kids, listen to this. I want this on there. This statement, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What beautiful words to speak of a life that has been well lived. And Paul spoke these words over himself knowing his life was about to be taken. That's what he meant when he said, the time of my departure has come. That statement, departure, the time of my departure, is a really vivid term in Greek. The the word for departure is analuo. It means to loosen something. And the idea behind it was uh, was a boat that's been moored to the shore, and you had to untie it so that it could set sail. And so what Paul was saying is, the time of my departure has come. This life isn't over. I'm not going to be gone. I'm just going to be untethered from this world so I can set sail. The true adventure is about to begin. I'm going to take my adventure to my home in heaven itself and receive my reward. That's why he could say what he said back in in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. What the apostle Paul is saying is the end of his life. More than likely he has already been sentenced, tried, sentenced, and is just awaiting his execution. Doesn't know if it's going to be a number of days, weeks, months, but he knows it's coming And knowing that death is right before him, all he can say is, praise the Lord, I have lived this life well, I know what's coming to me. I'm just about to set sail for the great adventure of my life. What what incredible faith Paul has right here at the end of this letter. What I love about Paul is that he knew his faith drove every aspect of his life. When he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, those were not empty words. If you know anything about the apostle Paul, his life was a dogfight. His race was a grueling race. Everything tried to cause him to abandon his faith, to draw his faith out of him because of all his struggles and conflicts. So for him to say, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, those were profound words. In fact, if you were to flip over, keep your space in 2 Timothy 4, but if you were to head over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he actually walks through some of what his life looked like. 
Listen to what it said, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If you can think about anything for the Apostle Paul, it is that that brother had a hard life. He suffered immensely to serve God. So when it says that he fought the good fight, that meant he was tenacious. He finished the grueling race. There's almost a side where you read about Paul and you go, how in the world could he live that life? How could he suffer so much? How could he be willing to sacrifice day in and day out like that? And the answer is simple. He kept his eyes on the prize. He knew there was a heavenly reward. He knew where he was going. The crown of righteousness would be his. He was guaranteed of what was to come for him. And because he had his eyes fixated on the prize, he was willing to live every single moment for the sake of that heavenly reward. What he knew how to do was to give up this instant gratification of this life for the sake of something worth so much more. It reminds me of something called a marshmallow test. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. It was actually a study that was done back in the 1960s and 70s. And, and what it was is it was a study done of, of basically the, the human capacity or lack thereof to forego self-gratification, instant gratification. And so what they would do is they would get a, a marshmallow and they would place it right in front of a preschooler. And they would say, okay, here's the deal. This marshmallow is yours. You can eat it whenever you want, but I'm about to leave. And if you'll wait for me to return and not eat that marshmallow in front of you, I'll give you two marshmallows. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know in my house, my daughter Jovi, you put a marshmallow in front of her, she's going to mow that sucker down. There's no self-control when it comes to my daughter. If you have preschooler, you, you, you know what they're going to do. It'd be so hard to look at a marshmallow and not eat it. In fact, there's been some videos and studies. We put a video in the pre-service videos, if you didn't see it, about this marshmallow test done. You should go back and watch it. And you watch these little kids just smelling the marshmallow, taking little nibbles off the marshmallow. It is so hard for them to hold off this instant gratification for the sake of something else. But the test was designed to see, could a person delay that for something greater, a, a, a better reward? And it's really intriguing, this study that was done, because they would check these same children, the ones who were able to delay gratification, and they would look back 10 years later and then 20 years later, and what they found is those who were able to delay gratification actually ended up being the most successful of all the kids. They were able to work harder, get a better education, do better in work. Why? Because they knew how to delay gratification. Now, I think there's actually pretty profound implications for us spiritually with this little marshmallow test. I think there are times God calls us, causes us in this life to be placed with a marshmallow, if you will, a temptation, a pleasure in this world. And he says, my child, would you be willing to delay the gratification of that for the sake of a much greater reward? And let me tell you, if you're willing to forego the marshmallow, your reward in heaven is a whole lot more than two marshmallows. The word of God talks about this incredible treasure we get to have in heaven. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, Jesus said, don't store for yourselves treasure on earth where moth destroys and rust oxidizes. Store up treasure in heaven where, wrath, where moth and rust cannot take it away from you. Saying, work for the eternal reward. 
If you were to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about how Paul says that we've, we have this foundation, which is Christ, and we've got to build upon that foundation. And how we build upon that foundation will determine what we experience in eternal life, whether that's going to be a foundation that we build upon with precious metal or whether we build upon it with hay and stubble that's going to burn away. In other words, how we live this life in Christ will have eternal ramifications. And the Christian life is set up for us to have a little bit of a marshmallow test. We can look around and we can see all these pleasures that are available for us and we can try to grab them or we can forego them. We can delay that and say, Lord, I want to live for heaven instead of earth. It's what the Apostle Paul said to the, the Colossian church in Colossians 3, 2. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. That's the challenge to say, I'm not going to be consumed with these earthly things around me. I'm going to set my gaze upon heaven and live for heaven. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was able to do. He was able to shift his vision from earth to heaven. And I know exactly when it happened. It happened on the road to Damascus. So here's this apostle, if you read in the book of Acts, or before that time, and he is a Christian killer. He is a guy who is going to Damascus to, in order to arrest and incarcerate Christians. And on the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. And it's this super bright shining light that utterly blinds him physically, but opens his eyes spiritually. He has a vision of God, of Jesus himself. And he was utterly changed from that vision. And from that moment, his eyes moved away from earth and went up to heaven itself. And for the rest of his days, he lived for that heavenly vision. He lived to serve that king that he met on that road to Damascus. And he was able to forego, even though it was difficult, even though it required a lot of suffering, forego all the pleasures of earth for the sake of the heavenly reward. That's why he was able to fight the good fight. That's why he was able to finish the race and keep the faith. Because he kept his eyes on the prize, the heavenly reward. Which makes me wonder, what about you? Where are your eyes fixed? Are they, are they fixed on earth or are they fixed on heaven? To which you'd say, well, I don't know. How do I know, Jason? I, I think they're fixed on heaven. I mean, I, I like Jesus, but how do I know where my gaze is fixed? Well, it's actually really easy. All you got to do is ask the question, where do you spend your resources? What are you striving for? In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you after the service is over, when you're around the lunch table with your friends or family, whoever you're watching the, the service with, I'd encourage you just to have a conversation. All right, let's talk about this. How do we spend the resources God has given us? Let's take money. Do I spend money trying to invest in eternal treasure or do I spend it trying to accumulate comforts on this earth? It'll tell us a whole lot of where our gaze is set. Well, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my weekends? Trying to have the most fun I can on earth or do I do it to try to prepare myself for a future reward? Where do I work? How do I raise my children? What are the things I'm willing to do and give up for the sake of heaven? And when you start looking at how you spend your resources, you'll know where your eyes are fixed, whether it's on earth or on heaven. Now, I really encourage you to take that exercise because what you may discover is that your gaze is far too fixed on earth than it is in heaven. Listen, I, I need you to do the study. I, I need you to take the practice because you don't know the danger of taking your eyes off of heaven and focusing them on earth. It can wreck your life. It can cause you to stop fighting the good fight it can cause you to give up the race that God has set out for you because it got a little too grueling. It can cause you to abandon the faith that is the only hope that you have. 
In fact, what you're going to discover in the text is that after Paul gives this definitive word, he's going to give us an example of a person who took his eyes off heaven and put them squarely on earth. His name was Demas. And we're going to learn a whole lot about a danger that faces every single one of us. So let's continue on in the text. In verse 9, here's what it says. 2 Timothy 4.9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, now stop there for a second. So I know there's a lot of names coming at you, but what Paul is doing is he's describing his missionary posse, his missionary team. Now, if you don't know much about Paul, Paul went on, he was the greatest missionary the world's ever known. He went on three missionary journeys that took years of peace. He traveled pretty much the entire Roman Empire. And when he went, he didn't go alone. He brought this group of, of superstar Christians with him who were so spent on serving God that they, they would travel from city to city endure persecution and suffering to plant churches and spread the gospel. I mean, I mean if you look at this list, there's some all-stars here. You can see some names you recognize in the Bible. You got Titus. There's a book of the Bible named after him. You got Luke and Mark. You got two gospels, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, written by these people. I mean, these are all-star Christians. You may not know who Tychicus is, but he was in other books. At the very end of some of the books, he, he, Paul sends greetings with those who are traveling with him, and Tychicus is one of those people. These are super Christians. In fact, even Demas, you're going to discover in a moment, was an incredibly strong Christian before he had this whole desertion problem. So what Paul is doing is he's talking about this group who, who was with him as he traveled around. Now, he is in Rome, probably in a, a really rugged, terrible prison situation, and he is feeling incredibly alone. He says, all my posse is gone. There's only Luke who's with me. Now, Luke, more than likely, historians believe, is with Paul because he's a physician. And apparently, Paul had some kind of physical ailment. He called it the thorn in the flesh. And he needed his physician there with him in order to help him out through this process. But Luke was the only one there with him. Everybody else was gone somewhere else. Now, now this doesn't mean that nobody came to visit Paul in prison. In fact, there were local believers who were in Rome who came to visit Paul from time to time. In fact, you see them at the end of this passage. I want you to skip over to verses 19 through 22. You're going to hear him begin to mention some of these other people who were with him. Listen to what it says. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So what Paul's doing here at the end is he's, he's saying, yeah, here's the, some others of my traveling team, Priscilla and Aquila. They're not with me. Onesiphorus isn't with me. Erastus, he's in Corinth. Tro Trophimus, he got sick, so he's in Miletus. So he's recurring again, like all my traveling group is gone. But then he says four names, but Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudius send greetings. Now, if you know anything about those no names, those are Latin names, which meant these people were Roman citizens. These were likely people who had come to faith, Gentile believers in the city of Rome. And they would come from time to time to visit Paul, which was great, but they weren't a part of his inner circle. They, they weren't a part of the team that endured the hardship of missionary travel with Paul. That whole team was gone. And you got to know, here's Paul at the end of his life, and it had to gnaw on him and at him that he didn't have his, his brothers and sisters with him, his traveling companions. Now, most of them weren't there by his own doing. It says that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus, more than likely to relieve Timothy so he could come visit Paul in Rome. He sent people, probably sent Crescens to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia to strengthen the churches that were there. So he's sending off his traveling companions. 
So he's all right with that. But there's one particular traveling companion that he is really ticked is not with him. And it's Demas. And the reason why was because of Demas's motivation for leaving. It wasn't to plant a church. It wasn't to continue the good work. It was because he had his eyes on the world. Verse 10, he said, because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Now, you got to understand just how wretched that is because of how strong Demas was. I had a great time studying this passage of Scripture because you look back over other chapters and books of the Bible and you begin to see these names pop up again. If you were to go over to the book of Colossians, you'll see the name Demas mentioned. Paul refers to Demas as one of his traveling companions. In other words, one of these great missionaries. If you were to go to Philemon, he's one of the few names mentioned as his co-laborer. Now, Paul did not use that term often. He used it very sparingly. It was a term of great respect, but he uses it of Demas, saying this guy Demas was one of my closest associates. And that's what's so gnawed at Paul, that Demas, this guy who had been with him through thick and thin because he was in love with this present world, he deserted Paul. Now that's the classic sign that somebody's vision has gone from heaven back to earth. That they are not thinking any longer. Their mind's not set on the things above. Their mind is now set on the things of the earth. They are in love with the world. Now here's what's so intriguing about this passage. As I studied this, what I realized is most historians don't believe that Demas abandoned the faith. Because it didn't say that he deserted Christ. It just says he deserted Paul. Now more than likely, what took place was that Demas was just exhausted from the missionary travel. He was tired of sleeping in a different place every single night, tired of the constant persecution, the constant difficulties. And and more than likely, he wanted to go to Thessalonica because there was a church established there and he just wanted to be a part of a stable church. Maybe he wanted to get married and settle down and raise a family and get a stable job. And maybe he just wanted a little bit of relief for a moment. I mean, can you really get mad at him for it? Well, probably you and I can't, but apparently the Apostle Paul could because he goes, man, the dude deserted me. And you might want to wonder, okay, why is Paul so hard on poor Demas? He just wants a little stability in his life. Well, the reason why it, it bugged Paul so much is because he knew what Demas was standing to lose. Here was Demas and the marshmallows in front of him. And he knows that if he just won't eat the marshmallow, the return will be so infinitely greater. The reward will be so much more. But poor Demas, he's falling in love with the world. He's looking at the marshmallow and he can't take it. He just shoves it in his mouth. And Paul's going, no, Demas, no. The reward is far too great. Don't give up the cause. And I think you and I can learn a whole lot from Demas. What we learn is that this world is beckoning us to take our eyes off of heaven and to put it right back on earth. This world is trying to rob us for the fire we have for Jesus. Demas started out on fire for Jesus, living for him, traveling the world to serve him. And that fire grew cold because the world snuffed it out of him. And make no mistake about it, the world will try to do the exact same thing to your faith. There's some of you watching this and you can look back over your life and realize there was a time when you were on fire for King Jesus. Oh, you were at church all the time. You were ready to serve, sacrifice, whatever, to love him completely. But the world has been snuffing that fire out of you, taming your faith, domesticating your faith. Listen, trust me, I know what happens because I can feel it in my own life. Just a few weeks ago, I've shared a few times about our fasting retreat, but one of the places the Lord really struck me was this area. I had to confess to the other guys in the lead team that I I feel my fire dimming sometimes. I feel like I used to be more bold, more wild, more willing to do whatever. I mean, there there was a time 
when I just got up and for two years of my life, I said, I'm going to Argentina to plant churches and to, to help expand the kingdom and the gospel. And I left my family, I left school, I left everything so that I could go to Argentina and expand the gospel of Jesus. There was a time just, just a few years ago when I was the missions pastor of this church and I would travel often to East Asia or to Eastern Europe so I could help Fielder begin to start missionary works in those places. And let me tell you about some of these trips. They were rugged. There were times when I slept on dirt floors inside somebody's house. Times when I had to take a super cold shower with a very low pressure, just trying to scrub the smell off. There, there were times where I had to use the restroom in a hole in the wall with this fly infested outhouse. But, but, there was, but there was this rawness to it, this passion to get to serve Jesus on the, the cutting edge. Can I be honest with you? I don't have the same burning passion I used to. I, I, I gotta be honest with you, man. I, I can't even imagine myself picking up for two years and going and live in another country. I, I got a church to lead. I, I got mouths to feed. I got responsibility. I got a mortgage to pay. How am I gonna do that? Listen, I know I used to sleep on dirt floors, but I got a bad back now. You know, I need my pillow top mattress that I have at home. I, I don't know if I can handle it. And I really, really like my hot shower with my good water pressure that we have. I, I enjoy using the restroom on an actual toilet seat. I, I like my coffee that I have in the morning time. I've just, I've grown a little too comfortable with my own standard of living. But you know what I think that means for me? I, I think it means I'm in great danger of falling in love with this present world. I think as I was preparing for this passage, the thing that struck me the most is that my, my name might be able to in, be inserted right there where Demas is. Like Paul could have written, do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Jason in love with this present world has deserted me and gone back to his safe, simple life. And it just struck me, when did my faith grow cold? When did I lose the passion to be wild and unruly and untamed to do whatever Jesus called me to do? When did my eyes shift from heaven back down to earth? I'm not saying I, I don't have moments where I live for heaven and I do what's right, but I just feel the fire constantly struggling to go out that I have to fan over and over and over again. And I wonder, do, do you struggle with that? Are there times when maybe if you were really honest, you would say your name could be inserted right there too? Yeah, Amy's talking about you. Mike, he's, he's talking about you. John, that's you. Stephanie, that's you. I mean, what if it was you and your name that would be inserted right there? Is there the chance that the world is trying to extinguish the fire you have for Jesus? Is there a chance right now that, that the world is taming your faith and taking your eyes off heaven and putting it back on earth? I, I hope there are some of you right now honest enough to say, Jason, I'm, I'm with you, man. Yes, I can feel it too. I feel like I used to be more passionate for King Jesus and I, I don't feel that same passion. I, I'm with you, Jason, but, but what do I do about it? I mean, how do I fight against it? Can I even change? Can, can you restore that passion? Listen, if you're willing to admit that you struggle with that fire, I got great news for you. Yes, you can restore the passion, the fire, the, the danger and the wildness to your faith. I know it because I see it right here in verse 11 with the name of the simple man, Mark. I love it because you almost miss the magnitude of this without the history of it. He said in verse 11, get Mark and bring him, bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, if you don't know history, you don't realize how miraculous of a statement that is for Paul to make. 
Because that guy, Mark, is referring to a man named John Mark. Now, if you know any of John Mark's history, go back and read Acts 13. John Mark was a guy who went with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he's traveling along with them. But somewhere in Pamphylia, he decides to leave Paul and Barnabas and go back to his home in Jerusalem. Totally deserts Paul on that missionary journey. Then in chapter 15, when they're about to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, well, Paul, let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, absolutely not. That dude's useless. He deserted us in Pamphylia. We're not bringing that guy with us. And some 20 years later now, Paul is saying, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me. Well, what in the world happened? What I love about this is I was studying this passage. I learned some things about John Mark. What I learned is that he actually grew up with an incredible amount of affluence. He was the, the son of very wealthy parents who owned a large home in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you were to go to Acts chapter 12, you would read about how Peter, when an angel had liberated him from jail, he went over to Mary, it says, the mother of John Mark's house, where the disciples were gathered. Apparently, they had a big enough house. They had maids and servants who answered the door when Peter came. They were wealthy, and the disciples were gathered there. That, that was John Mark's home. So John Mark grew up in affluence and in power and in wealth, and he was, a kind, he was the kind of guy who had soft hands and clean fingernails. He was the kind of guy who hobnobbed with the big names. I mean, he knew all the apostles by name. He hung out with Peter and with Andrew and James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus. And he knew these guys. More than likely, he was a teenager when Jesus was crucified. But he, he got to rub shoulders with all these people. He was somebody pretty special. One of the main reasons why he went with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. He was on fire for Jesus. I'll do anything. And then he starts the missionary journey and starts realizing how difficult it is to sleep on a, on a, a stone floor or, or to travel from one place to another to begin to be persecuted as you go along. And he makes his way to Pamphylia and he goes, I can't take this. This is too much for me. And he slinks his way back to Jerusalem because he wants his comforts. Why? Because that passion had died down and he got his eyes focused back on this world and all the comforts with it. Yet 20 years later, Something's changed enough in him where the Apostle Paul says, bring Mark with me because he is useful. Apparently what that means is that there was some kind of fire that rekindled in Mark where he said, no, I refuse to, to live in the comfort of Jerusalem, my parents' home. I want to go back. I want to plant churches. I want to spread the gospel. I want to serve you, Jesus, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, wherever you want me to go. My yes is on the table. You know what that means? It means it's not impossible. It means that if the fire has begun to die down in our hearts, it can be rekindled. If our eyes have gotten lazy back down on earth, they can be relifted back to heaven itself. We can put our eyes back on our heavenly reward and live for that and forsake the marshmallow that we're settling for and say, we want a better reward. It's possible because Mark did it. The only thing we have to do is keep our eyes squarely fixated on the heavenly prize. This is exactly the way Paul ends this letter reminding everybody, reminding Timothy, I know where my final destination is and that's why I live the way I live. Let's finish it up. Verses 13 through 18. Here's what it says. Speaking of Timothy, Paul says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it, be, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
Listen to this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul at that very end, he gives the bombshell right there, the central truth of the whole letter. Listen, I know I've had to endure. I've had Demas desert me. I've had Alexander attack me. I've had to suffer incredible in this, incredibly so in this life. But I know Jesus is gonna rescue me every single time and ultimately he's gonna bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I know my eternity is set. I'm gonna be untethered from this life one day and I'm gonna make myself set sail over to my eternal reward. It is set. That's why Paul could say in, in Philippians 1.21, I know that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is win-win for me. That's, that's actually why he asks for the, the cloak and for the books and for the parchments. Paul doesn't know how long he's got on this earth. He might make it through winter. So he says, go ahead and bring my cloak just in case I do and bring me my book so I continue to study the books of the Bible. Bring me my parchment so I can continue to write letters because as long as I have life, I'm gonna serve my king for me to live as Christ. But you know what? If Roman Empire takes my life, that's okay because for me to die is gain. I'm gonna be untethered for this world and begin the greatest adventure of my life when I get the crown of righteousness, the eternal reward, and every single bit of it is gonna be worth it. So bring what you will. Nothing's gonna stop me. It was this realization that it was win-win, whether he lives, whether he dies, that made Paul such a wild, unruly, incredible missionary for the sake of the gospel. And I think it's the same truth that will make you and I beautifully wild and unruly and passionately in love with Jesus more than anything else in this world. With our gaze fixed on heaven above, not on the earth below. It's when we're confident of where we're gonna go. Listen, there should be aspects of your life that wig people out a little bit. There should be aspects of the way that you live that would make people go, why in the world do you give so much money away? Because they should be shocked that you don't live for this present world because they don't know there's something better to come. Why wouldn't you eat the marshmallow right in front of you? They don't realize there's a greater reward. There should be aspects of your life where you live for that reward that just don't make sense to unbelievers. What, you're bringing a teenager into your home that has a troubled background? Do you know how hard that's gonna be? Wait, wait, wait. You're gonna pack up your whole family, leave your job where you make good money so that you can go be a church planner in another country where it's dangerous? What are you thinking? There should be aspects of your life that just don't make sense apart from you living for the greater reward. And the only thing that will give you the heart and the passion and the desire to do it is when you are certain that reward is yours. You gotta be just as sure as Paul who says, I know one day Christ is gonna bring me safely into this heavenly kingdom and I know the reward's gonna be worth it. So here's my question. Are you confident? Do you know you have a heavenly reward? Do you know it's all gonna be worth it? Look, I, I can think of no better way for us to be certain of that heavenly reward than to celebrate what makes it certain, the body and the blood of Christ Jesus. And so in a moment, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. Now, I wanna caution you. I know the moment the word Lord's Supper leaves my mouth, you start getting all you know, ready for it, you stop listening, you start tuning out, and you're gonna miss an incredibly important part of this message. The Lord's Supper is something you and I must not take lightly. It is a declaration of the greatest amount of suffering a human being can endure. His body mutilated and crucified, his blood shed to the ground so that you and I could be saved, so that he could guarantee our entrance into heaven. 
That, that truth should grip us. It's a symbol of faith, and I pray you won't take it lightly. But listen, I know there are some of you who are watching this right now, and you're struggling. You want to have faith, but you're not quite there. Listen, don't take the bread and the cup. It will, it will do nothing for you. It's a symbol of faith, and if you don't have that faith, don't do it. I want you to wrestle with something else. I want, to, I want you to wrestle with the futility of the things you've been pursuing in this earth because I know there are some of you watching this right now. And you've come to the false belief that this world can satisfy you. You've seen the marshmallow in front of you and you've decided to eat it thinking that's going to be what satisfies you. Let me tell you about it. That marshmallow will never do it for you. you right now, you think if I, could just, if I could just be successful in work, then that'll satisfy me. If I could just get into that relationship, that'll satisfy me. If, if I could just purchase that thing, that'll satisfy me. You think that sexual pleasure or some substance or some achievement in life will fulfill you. It never will because you were created for something more than this earth. You were created for heaven. And if you'd come to the end of yourself and just realize all these things are false hopes, you'd finally realize only Christ can satisfy you. And it's at that moment when you can finally come to faith in Christ. The word God tells us if you're willing to forsake these false pursuits, realize those are rebellion against God. Say, forgive me, God, for settling for these things that can never satisfy me. Jesus, I want you. I want to give you my life. All that I have left, it's yours. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord, the word of God says you'll be saved and you'll experience the only thing that can satisfy you, the very presence of Christ inside of you. Listen, if you're ready for that, we want to help you take that step. We have pastors who are ready right now to engage with you, to pray with you, to help you take that step. There's this beautiful thing you can do. You can declare your faith in Christ publicly through something called baptism. We have a baptism celebration coming up on September 13th where we're going to be able to baptize, Lord willing, dozens of people who are expressing their faith in Christ Jesus. And you might need to be one of those people. All you got to do is let us know. Here's how you can do it. You can text the word next step to 94253. You can see it right there on your screen or you can go to fielder.org slash next step. And what's going to happen is this really brief little form that you fill out and there's a place where you can indicate that, that you're ready to declare your faith in Christ or you can indicate you're ready to be baptized. Maybe you just have a prayer request. Maybe you just want to talk to somebody about something you're struggling with spiritually. Please take that step. Text the word next step to 94253 or go to fielder.org slash next step. Let us know. We want to minister to you today. We're ready just requires a small step of faith. But I know there are many of you watching this. You've taken that step of faith. And now you get to express your faith through the taking of the Lord's Supper. Now, this Lord's Supper is two different things you're going to be doing. One, it's going to be a reminder for you how loved you are by Christ, that he gave up his body and his blood for you. But there's a second part to taking the Lord's Supper. It is a dangerous declaration that you're going to imitate Christ. You see in the bread and in the cup, the sacrifice he was willing to make. He gave up everything for you and for me. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, God, I'm willing to give up everything for you too. I'm taking this not just as a symbol of what you've done for me, but what I'm willing to do for you. It is saying, Lord Jesus, my yes is on the table. I take these elements as a sign to you wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to sacrifice, the answer is yes. Because I trust you, it's going to be worth it. So when you take the Lord's Supper, do it with your heart prepared. So we're going to sing a song in Christ alone. It's going to draw us in to worship God. It's going to draw us in to say, God, I trust that you are, you are worth it and I'm willing to give anything else for you. And I want you to worship in that song and I want one of you to go get the elements ready for whoever's going to be gathered together and you're going to be able to say, God, I trust you. My eyes are on heaven and the Lord's Supper is going to remind you of it. So now prepare your heart.
Let's get ready to take the Lord's Supper.